Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Pete Pranica, the TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies, and your host for the Grizz Weekly Grind. Got a very interesting show for you this week. Uh, very happy to bring you a new feature that we're calling 901 Knowledge, things that you may or may not know about Memphis and the Memphis area, and a very special guest when you consider that this is the 20th anniversary of the Grizzlies arriving in Memphis from Vancouver. We are going to talk to the president of business operations at the time, was in Vancouver, came to Memphis, Andy Dolge. A lot of people in Memphis remember him very well, and we'll uh, catch up with Andy, and we'll tell you the story of how the Grizzlies ended up in Memphis, Tennessee. So we've got that latest edition of NBA Storytime. I've got a good one about Allen Iverson I will share with you. And uh, we've also got uh, Petey's Points, that plus the 901 knowledge. That's what we have cooked up for you today in this edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind. But first, we start where we always start. That was the week that was. When we last left you on the Grizz Weekly Grind, the Grizzlies were getting ready to take on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Cleveland Cavaliers had lost the night before in Orlando, and Colin Sexton had suffered a left ankle sprain and was listed as questionable coming into the game. Well, Colin Sexton had been on a big-time roll, 20-plus points every game so far this season. He was a late scratch. Darius Garland was not playing with a right shoulder sprain. Matthew Dellavedova was out with a concussion. Dante Exum with a right calf strain. Kevin Love would not play. Dylan Windler would not play. And so when you looked at it, you thought, okay, well, this might be an opportunity for the Grizzlies to get their first home win. Yeah, it was an opportunity, and it looked really good in the first quarter. Grizzlies outscoring the Cavaliers 24-19 in the first quarter, but then the second quarter and the fourth quarter again proved to be the Grizzlies' downfall. Uh, Jetty Osman got off to a really good start, and Andre Drummond, yes, I know he had that kind of odd-looking possession that it looked like maybe he was trying a backhanded shot to himself. Well, whatever that was, he still went for 22-15. and Grizzlies shot just 43% from the floor, only eight free throws for that game. Uh, and the Grizzlies simply did not execute in the clutch. Grizzlies at one point had a five-point lead, 12 lead changes, nine ties. Grizzlies put up 48 in the paint. They got 17 from Jonas Valanciunas, but a miserable shooting night from Dylan Brooks, only four of 13. And the Grizzlies only had four players in double figures, all of them starters. Uh, the bench was led by DeAnthony Melton with eight points. It was a disappointing loss. For the Grizzlies, this was a Cavaliers team that we thought was entirely paint-based. Only 38 paint points for them, but they made 13 threes. So uh, Cleveland changed their philosophy, at least for that particular game, and they were able to walk out of FedEx form with a 94-90 win. Cleveland got to 5-4. and four. Grizzlies dropped to 2-6. and six. And then Brooklyn was going to come to town, and it had already been reported that Kevin Durant would miss the game with health and safety protocols, and uh, then Kyrie Irving because of personal issues. So the Grizzlies were going to be looking at the Brooklyn Nets shorthanded again, and uh, they were able to take advantage this time. Although The Grizzlies made it a little bit more challenging probably than they wanted to, as they were able to build a 22-point lead. But uh, this is a really good Brooklyn Nets team, and with my own eyes in person, I've not seen their full team. I've not seen them at full strength and and will not because Spencer Dinwiddie most likely will miss the entire season with an ACL tear. Kevin Durant we've not seen with our own eyes at least. Seen him on television. Uh, Kyrie Irving. And then Karis LeVert. Karis LeVert put up a Grizzlies 
opponent season high, 43 points. Jalen Brown had 42. Lavert went for 43, made seven threes, six of six from the free throw line, throwing six assists for good measure. I mean, Lavert was sensational, particularly in the third quarter. Um, the bonus to this game is that the Grizzlies gave up a 22-point lead and they fought their way back, and they did it without Jonas Valanciunas in the second half. Uh, odd circumstance, uh, and of course now the COVID protocols are, are not necessarily public knowledge. They're only reporting findings. Valanciunas had eight points, four rebounds at halftime, and then we were informed that because of health and safety protocols and later head coach Taylor Jenkins would say an abundance of caution that Valanciunas would not return to the game. But we were assured by the Grizzlies that it was not a positive COVID test. So we know that Valanciunas did not test positive. He was held out of that game. What that will mean for the upcoming road trip to Cleveland and Minneapolis, don't know at this point when we are recording this podcast. Uh, it would be a huge loss for the Grizzlies, although obviously Gorgie Jang has played very well and Xavier Tillman got some crucial minutes against Brooklyn on Friday night. Grizzlies came up with the offensive and defensive plays that they needed down the stretch, which is something that they'd really struggled with. You know, in the NBA, we talk about clutch time, uh, final five minutes margin, plus or five points, uh, plus or minus five points. And the Grizzlies in the bubble were 0-5. And, and they were, I think, 1-3 this year. So executing in the final five minutes of a close game, that had been something that had really been bothering the Grizzlies. But they were able to get enough shots and stops down the stretch to go on to win it. And for once, it was a Brooklyn-Memphis game that did not go into overtime, and the Grizzlies win it 115-110. to Big performance from a lot of guys. Dylan Brooks, 24 points. It took him 19 shots, but Dylan was aggressive, did not file out, was able uh, to try to at least slow down Karis LeVert. I think everybody tried. Very, very few succeeded. Uh, Brandon Clark, best game of the season, bar none. 21 points for him. Desmond Bain, double figures again off the bench. Grayson Allen tied his season high with 10. Uh, DeAnthony Melton, his best game of the young season. Got to see Tim Frazier for the first time. And, you know, pretty decent 10-minute run from him. Four points and three assists. And uh, a double-double from Tyus Jones. And we were seeing John Morant shoot pregame, and he looked pretty good. So maybe his absence is closer to three weeks uh, than to five weeks because the initial diagnosis for the ankle sprain was a three- to five-week absence. So Grizzlies, since we last visited, they go one and one. Disappointing loss to Cleveland and a pretty good win over the Brooklyn Nets, although the Nets were a little shorthanded. But they don't put asterisks next to wins in the media guide. They just ask you how much how much you scored, and 115-110 was the final. So that was the week that was. What about PD's points? Well, I think number one, and yes, it's a small sample size, but I'm going to say that Brandon Clark is back. Brandon Clark is back to performing at the standard that he set last year as an all-rookie performer. Last year when Brandon started, it seemed that always something went wrong, and he only averaged two and a half points and shot 29% from the floor and and he'd get injured or there'd be foul problems or, or the matchups wouldn't work. And he never really got into a rhythm as a starter, a spot starter, very few starts last year. But now the Grizzlies have moved him into the starting lineup. I think his synergy with Tyus Jones is exceptional. I think it's a good move to have Brandon in the starting lineup and he is now starting to adjust to being a starter. Just 
magnificent effort. 21 points, eight boards, five assists, two blocks, hit three threes. And he admitted in the postgame interview, he was like, look, I seven threes is probably more than I should shoot. Coaching staff is encouraging me to shoot, and I will continue to shoot. But he even understands that seven might not be the optimal number for him. Talking with Brandon during training camp, he was all about, I'm trying to improve everything on my game. He said, what I'm really working on, I'm working on my three-point shot, and I'm working on my handle. And again, I know, curse of the small sample size. But in the Brooklyn game, he puts up five assists and hits three threes. Three out of seven threes, that's not bad. I mean, that that's a decent percentage. So he plays 33 minutes, puts up 21 points, does not get himself in foul trouble. Um that kind of performance from Brandon Clark on a consistent basis is going to be much needed until Jaron Jackson Jr. comes back. And when Jaron comes back, then that production can go to the bench and maybe you start thinking, I know I'm getting way ahead of myself. You know, if Brandon Clark puts up these numbers as a sixth man, you know, then, then we're talking about some postseason hardware. But, but that's another thing. Um, item number two in PD's points. One of the things that Taylor Jenkins was talking about during training camp was that this offense needs to be more read and react, which to me means it needs to have a flow. It can't be too mechanical. There can't be too much thought where you're screening here at the elbow. So I go here, they go over, I go here, you go there. And you're starting to think about the individual machinations of a particular play. That's not where the Grizzlies really want to be. They want to be more in a position where they can read and react. John Moran is very good at this. Tyus Jones maybe not quite at the same level, but he's good at it and he's efficient at it. What we saw in the Cleveland game, we saw a Grizzlies offense that was very plotting and very methodical, and they ended up playing the Cleveland Cavaliers style of game, which was we want to throw it in the paint. We're going to shoot a ton of twos, not a lot of threes. Uh, Think of the Grizzlies three or four years ago. Um, and the Grizzlies ended up playing Cleveland's game, and, and clearly it was not a successful game. They play against Brooklyn, and yes, they made shots, and that always is helpful. But I thought that the Grizzlies' flow overall in the Cleveland, I beg your pardon, in the Brooklyn game was far superior, and just everybody seemed to play well with a renewed spirit. Um, you know, you, you would have thought that maybe the Cleveland lost. There might have been a bad taste in their mouth that they were really upset about it. But they went out and, and, and they handled their business against Brooklyn. And, and yes, I know Brooklyn was shorthanded, but Grizzlies offense, much better flow. If they can flow and play with pace, and when I say play with pace, I don't mean that they're going to be running up and down the floor and everything is going to be a fast break, as, as Dave Yeager used to famously call it, vomit basketball. But if you play with pace, if you cut harder, uh, you know, roll harder, if you make your cuts sharper, those are things that are elements of pace. And if you can do that, and the Grizzlies can read and react and anticipate what the defense is going to give them and make sure that they get the best shot for what the defense presents to them, they're going to have a chance to win some more basketball games just as they did against the Brooklyn Nets. So those are Petey's points for this particular program, which brings us to, hope you like this feature, NBA story time. When you've been around the NBA as long as I have, which is going on 28 years, you get some stories after a few years. And one of the stories that has always been one of my favorites, and it is a story that has percolated uh, among our traveling crew, which is a, a small insular society that we consider our family and, and during the six months of, of the NBA season. 
Um, we have to go back a few years to when Allen Iverson was part of the Grizzlies franchise. It was the start of the 2009-2010 NBA season. And you'll remember that Mike Heisley went out and decided that it would be a good idea to, sa- to sign Allen Iverson. Not everybody in the organization was completely on board with that including the head coach, Lionel Hollins. Lionel Hollins was not entirely thrilled because obviously Iverson did not have the best reputation in the world. All you have to do is YouTube the classic rant uh, about practice. Long story short, uh, Iverson reports to camp. He's, he's not in the best shape. He pulls a hamstring, can't play when the Grizzlies uh, start the season with some home games, but the Grizzlies go on a West Coast road trip. Iverson plays three games. He plays off the bench. He wants to be a starter. Lionel Hollins refuses to start him. And so the Grizzlies uh, are in Sacramento and Iverson plays off the bench in that particular game. And the Grizzlies lose in overtime, 127 to 116. Zach Randolph went for 30 and 16 in that game, but Kevin Martin went for 48 for those of you who are uh, into trivia. And Kevin Martin, one of the all-time Grizz killers, by the way. Um, So we go on to Los Angeles, where we're going to play the Lakers and the Clippers. And at that point in time, we were staying at the W Hotel out in Westwood, and um, we were getting ready to go down to our production meeting. At that time, Sean Tui was my analyst, and we were going to have a poolside production meeting. And Sean had gotten into the elevator. I was not there, but he had gotten into the elevator with Stephen Hunter, who was a reserve big man for the Grizzlies at the time. And... uh, Sean got into the elevator with him, and Stephen just started shaking his head, and he said, he gone. And Sean looked at him quizzically and said, what, what do you mean? And Hunter just, just shook his head sadly, he gone. And Sean looked at him again and said, what are you talking about? And Stephen Hunter looked at him, and he said, AI, he gone. And that is how we found out that Allen Iverson left the Grizzlies never to return. Still don't know where the blue guitar is that he was given at his somewhat offbeat introductory press conference. But yeah, that's the story. So if you ever hear us on the telecast referred to he gone, it's about Allen Iverson. And that's your NBA story time for this edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. Like I said, we're going to start a new uh, a feature, periodic feature on the podcast, and that is 901 Knowledge. One of the things that attracted me to doing this podcast uh, from the Basketball Podcast Network, they said we would really like for you to do some long-form interviews. We would like for you to be able to talk about things other than basketball, uh, things that relate to the city of Memphis. And I thought that was a, a pretty cool way of looking at it. So we will bring you people from different walks of life that have a Memphis connection uh, and are probably Grizzly fans as well. And I thought it would be very fitting, since the Grizzlies are now celebrating 20 years in Memphis, that for our first edition of 901 Knowledge, that we would bring you a conversation. And we're going to do this in two parts, because we had a really long conversation. Uh, This is part one of a conversation with Andy Dolich. Andy Dolich was the president of business operations for the Vancouver Grizzlies when they were in the process of being sold to Michael Heisley, and the decision was made to relocate the team to Memphis. Uh, Andy Dolich has been a professional sports executive his entire professional life, starting with the Philadelphia 76ers when they were one of the worst teams in the NBA. 
He's been on the West Coast for the vast majority of his uh, sports marketing career, sports management career with the uh, 49ers, with the Giants, with the A's, you name a Bay Area sports entity, and he has been involved in it. And I got to know Andy because uh, I joined the franchise uh, when they moved into FedEx Forum in 2004. So sat down with Andy Dolich from his office in uh, the Bay Area, and we talked about how the Grizzlies got to Memphis, how they built FedEx Forum, and how they overcame some initial obstacles, many of them attitudinal, to getting the Grizzlies located in Memphis, Tennessee. So Andy, take me back as we celebrate 20 years of, of the Grizzlies in Memphis, what it was like in Vancouver, the franchise is going to be sold, it's going to move, and you're trying to figure out where in the world does this franchise land? First and foremost, uh, it's good to see you, Pete, and I'd say hi to all my friends in, uh, in Grizzly land and, and far and beyond. Uh, when you think about how quickly 20 years can go by, that's, um, that's scary in its own right. But back to those days um, where the team was in Vancouver, we had four targets that we were looking at. Um, New Orleans, Memphis, Louisville, and Anaheim. And as you probably would remember, uh, the late Michael Heisley and the late David Stern were not kumbaya on anything at any time uh, during their time on earth. And I say that with great respect for both gentlemen. And with, and with great diplomacy. Yeah, yeah, zero diplomacy. <laughs> um, lots of four-letter diplomacy between both of them, which I don't know if it was ever recorded. Anyway, we did we did have one other target, which I'm not sure got a lot of ink, but it was Las Vegas. And isn't it ironic how things have changed? Um, Mike spent some money and we looked at it because of the whole gambling circumstance. And at that time, David said something uh, sort of like, no team's ever going to Vegas as long as I'm around. So that was the end of that. Um, and so we flew to a lot of different places and in relatively short order, Anaheim wasn't gonna work because of Disney. They actually wanted us to buy the hockey team before we could go to the pond. And Mike went, not interested. Um, then we looked um, at Louisville and Louisville just, it didn't have an arena. It didn't have the ability to tell the university, which was the power, hey, we're looking at a pro team. So that didn't happen. Um, and New Orleans, there was a deal to be made there. Um, and it really came from the state, which was willing to underwrite it. But in the work that we were doing in research, we just didn't feel that there was much of a basketball passion in New Orleans. And clearly the pursuit team in Memphis, um, all of those individuals, the unique relationship that Mayor Rout and Willie Harrington had between the city and the county. And then of course, Fred Smith and his team at FedEx which totally understood what a new building could do for the company. You know, you, you travel around and when you ask people, hey, where's the world headquarters of FedEx? 
not everybody knows. And when you say Memphis and you say 30,000 plus people, they go, wow, I didn't know that. Um, so clearly, I mean, Pitt and Barbara Hyde, so many others, Gail Rose, uh, Charles Ewing, Fred Jones, and on and on and on, their pursuit of the team, which at one point was Charlotte also, they wanted Charlotte to come, but uh, Mike sort of dispatched me to Memphis and he said, we're going to Memphis. You start working there. And that's really how it came about. And, you know, it was not without some controversy uh, in the local community. There were some opposed to it. But when you had that group uh, in Memphis that had leadership, teamwork and trust, um, it made it happen in a you know, what I think is is an amazing, positive part of the history of Memphis. Was it basically Mike Heisley seeing what the pursuit team in Memphis was all about and his faith and trust in them that they could get a building built and this could be done the right way? Yeah, the one thing about Mike, he was a very difficult taskmaster to work for and you had to have thick skin and you couldn't go home crying if he lashed out at you. And you've probably been lashed out a few times, I'm guessing. Um, we all, we all, we all have, have felt. Yeah. Uh, and that's when you knew he respected you when he F-bombed you. So um, he saw what all these people were representing and what they did represent was the absolute DNA of, of Memphis all different levels of the community. And you could see what a new building was going to do for the community. I mean, if you would have said to people 23 or 24 years ago who were walking on Beale Street, hey, you see that hole over there? That's gonna be a building that's going to bring professional sports, entertainment, community pride, uh, economic, economic pride to the community, they would have said, mm, I don't think so. Where's the other bar going to be put in? Yeah. We're visiting with Andy Dolich, who was the president of business operations for the Memphis Grizzlies when they relocated from Vancouver, as we reminisce about 20 years of the Grizzlies in Memphis and the early days in the pyramid. The pyramid may from the outside look to be kind of cool, but inside it was not the best basketball environment. What was the biggest challenge about putting on an NBA game in that particular arena? I would say that there really weren't that many gigantic challenges because the university had played some games there. Um, You know, I would ask people, I'm a big believer in sort of inane trivia that nobody could give a damn about. And I would say, tell me the third largest pyramid in the world. And people would go, I don't know, you got Egypt and you got... And actually, I think I'm right. The pyramid is the third largest pyramid in the world behind the ancient pyramids. And then, I guess, Luxor in uh, in uh, Vegas. And, you know, Sidney Schlenker came up with this crazy idea to build the pyramid next to Memphis and the whole concept of Egypt. Um, wasn't really that hard, although... You've, you've been to so many buildings and there's a reason they don't build them in a pyramid shape, right? Uh, things have changed over time. So acoustics, seating, 
marketing, advertising doesn't work out too well. And um, I'm a big time fisherman. So when I go back to Memphis, I couldn't be happier to go into the largest bass pro shop. And isn't that ironic? I guess it's another trivia question. Name the third largest pyramid in the world. That's the largest bass pro shop on planet Earth. And you go, oh, that would be the bass pro shop in Memphis, Tennessee. Of course, of course. Uh, my favorite memory, Pete, of, of the pyramid is uh, that river, the Big Muddy. That would tend to flood every once in a while, right? You yes, remember that. I do, I do. And I'm, I was a resident, a proud resident of Mud Island. And I knew why it was called Mud Island pretty quickly. But there was a flood. I don't even know if you remember that. There was a flood in the pyramid. And when I came over one day, there was actually fish in the pyramid that had come in. On long, long before it was a Bass Pro Shop. Yeah, long before. Bass, yeah, they didn't have tanks. It was on the floor. So I'll always remember that. I do remember, because I was with Portland at the time, I do remember coming in on at least one occasion when the river had flooded, and there were certain restrooms that were not habitable, I guess you would say. <laughs> but then part of part of the reason why, and part of the decision-making process that you're going to come to Memphis is that there's a promise to build a building. Absolutely. You have done so much in professional sports. Is there anything more challenging than building a building to an NBA specification? No, I, I think it goes for any venue in the world of sports. And even for inflation and even a different market, I mean, I've worked on both coasts and in the middle, but when you say the entire FedEx forum with the practice facility and everything we built was all in for less than $300 million, less than $300 million. And I look at the place that I'm in now in Northern California, Chase Center, beautiful, $1.6 billion. Uh, Levi's Stadium, where the Niners uh, played before they were kicked out to go to Arizona, $1.9 billion. Um, the Allegiant Stadium, where the Raiders are, $2 billion. And then SoFi Stadium, $5.5 billion. So the challenge of building is there. But again, if you don't have the total buy-in of elected officials a major business or business leaders in the community and a large group of fans, you're never going to get it done. And we had that in, in great shape um, in Memphis and that, that got it done. And it was a vision. It wasn't just a place to play basketball. It was a living, breathing part of the additional soul. And I use that term directly that talks to the music and the food and the level of enjoyment that Memphians have in, in life. And that's what, in my view, what it became, because if you come into the pyramid, if you came into FedEx Forum, you knew you were in Memphis. And as you traveled around so many venues, sometimes you wouldn't know what city you're in, right? Right. You always knew that you were in Memphis, Tennessee, when you were in FedEx Forum. But over and above the finances and having the local buy-in, 
just the physical, how do we design this building? How many people do we want to put into it? What, how big is too big? How small is too small? What is, should the seating bowl look like? That's a major, major, major process. Walk us through some of the key steps from going from a hole in the ground to fab, fabulous FedEx form. Victory has many parents. Defeat is but an orphan. Of course. If you do something well in life, and I would say FedEx Forum was done well, you have a hundred people that took credit for it. And if something is a disaster, they go, hey, Pranica, Dolish, uh, you screwed that up um, and, and leave me alone. What we were able to do again, because of the structure of the team under Mike Heisley and Stan Meadows, who played a major role, and then all those names that I mentioned in the community and some that I didn't, we started with that this building is going to exemplify Memphis. It's not going to just be some cathedral which could be plopped down in any other city. Hence the Rock and Soul Museum, the only building in the world that has a Smithsonian institution, which sort of gets overlooked a lot. Um, the feeling of uh, the FedEx elements, one of the great design companies in the history of business, FedEx. So what you do, Pete, is you bring in the best minds that you can to help you out. And it was always easy for me in sports as being integrally involved. I'm the dumbest guy in the room all the time. So all I have to do is bring in or convince smart people to work on the project, which is what we ultimately had. And, and I know that at least the seating bowl was copied from, I guess, well, then it was Conseco Fieldhouse. And I think it's Bankers Life Fieldhouse. So you did pull some elements from other successful venues, but oh, great ideas are, I'm one of the great idea stealers of all time. Don't tell the authorities, but <laughs> of course you look at what works and, um, you know, Conseco and other places just had that feel for basketball. And we knew the other benefit minor, we knew we weren't going to have hockey. So in all, a lot of the buildings that you go into, they are a hockey basketball setup. This was hoop focused along with entertainment. And also the acoustics of the building were extremely important because when you have a community like Memphis where people can go to um, some of the best recording studios in the history of music, you better make sure that the acoustics in your building are as good as any place that anybody could be at. Yeah, and and to this day, people who come into FedEx Forum who are not regular regulars there will tell you what a great building it is. And even to the point where I'll have referees tell me that FedEx Forum is still one of their favorite buildings and not because of what the fans chant at them, but, but just the, they, they, they enjoy the venue so well. Uh, to that point, it's probably really good because the acoustics are so good and the sight lines are so good. The officials can point out who's ragging them during the games. Exactly. Exactly. Um, not everybody in Memphis was on board with the Grizzlies landing in Memphis. Right. What was the biggest hurdle that you had to overcome attitudinal or otherwise to make sure that the Grizzlies had the best possible chance of taking root and being a huge part of this community? 
Yeah, I think again that that underscores and exemplifies sort of the unique challenges that we had <clears throat> coming to a small NBA market, which didn't always get the first look when it talked about relocating teams, the circumstance in the NFL where the team was there and then they went away. Um, the examples that I look at are literally black and white, Mayor Harrington and Jim Rout, the county and the city. And I had some experience working in Oakland for many, many years with the same circumstance. It was a city county joint building. So you had to deal with the politics, the elected officials that didn't always see things the same way. The level of cooperation that was built between Mayor Rout and Mayor Harrington was um, so positive for factions that might not have agreed to come together. And the county went, yeah, you know, we're out here. We like our life out here. Um, in Cordova or other places, you guys in the city, that's fine. But we were able to bring that together. And again, if you look at the pursuit team, if you look at those individuals who basically represented all the constituencies in Memphis, it was a diverse group, not afraid to speak its mind. And yes, we had a number of individuals that were highly opposed to the NBA coming to town, to a building going up, to tax dollars going to it. And, you know, Memphis, in the most positive sense, is a faith-based community. And the faith business is strong. And there was some concern, and I remember, he will go unnamed, but a major leader of a faith-based institution that Gail Rose, um, and hello to Gail. Gail Rose took me to as we as I was meeting people around town, and this gentleman had words um, that were not necessarily positive about the Grizzlies and the NBA coming to town, and the sort of NBA lifestyle that he envisioned. And it was like, well, that meeting didn't go too well, and he represented thousands of people. And I always looked with a big smile on my face. A year or two later, he had four season tickets that he paid for in FedEx Forum and loved it because the players and the organization became a part of the faith-based focus of the community. And so that's our first edition of 901 Knowledge with our very special guest, Andy Dolich, former president of business operations for the Vancouver Grizzlies and the Memphis Grizzlies. We'll have part two of our conversation in a future edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind. That does it for today's show. The Grizz Weekly Grind has been brought to you by Hoop City Basketball Club. Since 2005, their mission has been to assist young student-athletes in grades 1 through 12 in developing a strong work ethic with discipline, responsibility, and accountability. Hoop City has helped young men be great on the court and in the community, and their alumni include major college and NBA players. For more information on how to become part of this great sports and character-building club, Log on to HoopCityBC.com. This has been the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. Thank you so much for listening.